Okay, so welcome again, everyone, to Drisha's Spring Program. This is the second class of this series on rabbinic authority and personal autonomy in early rabbinic law with Dr. Ayelet Ofman Lipson. And with that, I'll turn it to you, uh, Dr. Lipson. Thank you very much, Evie. So good evening, everyone, and nice to see uh, people who were here last week back again with us. Um, we started off last week by speaking about how um, the question of rabbinic authority has become a very big deal in the modern era, and especially in the 20th century. Um, and what I'm doing in this series is actually going back to our earliest sources in the Talmudic period and looking at three cases in which we see a kind of uh, argument or conversation going on um, about this question of rabbinic authority. And are there certain limits to uh, rabbinic authority and certain areas where an individual gets to make his or her own decision um, in certain halachic instances, okay? So last week we looked at the case of a sick person eating on Yom Kippur. And today we're going to look at another case, which is going to be, I would say, much more um, nitty gritty, okay? You know how the Talmud says that David Amelech um, would dirty his hands with Shafir v'Shilia, right? With, uh, with uh, the placentas um, of animals and kind of get into the real nitty gritty, dirty parts of halacha. Um, so in a way, that's what we're going to be doing um, this evening. We're going to be dealing with questions which have to do with, um, with impurity of the body. So menstrual impurity and seminal impurity, zav zava and nida. Um, and maybe these aren't the, the themes that are most commonly studied in Drisha public lectures. Um, but I have a feeling that the people who are here are, you know, well acquainted enough with, with the Talmud to know that the Talmud deals with lofty ideas of tefillah and spirituality together with um, these very, very nitty gritty legal ideas as well. So that's where we're going to be going this evening, okay, or afternoon for you. Um, Okay, so I'm going to share the source sheet. Okay, and when we get into this subject of, um, of bodily emissions, then we're also immediately in the realm of asking questions about gender, okay? And a lot of the analysis of this subject has been done from a, a gendered, uh, gender critique lens or perspective. And the question then becomes a question of, well, is this a question of rabbinic authority versus personal autonomy in general? Or is this a question of gender? Is this a question of the rabbis wanting to establish their authority in the specific realm of women's bodies, okay? Um, so I want us to keep that in mind as we look at these sources, because um, I think that to a certain extent, it is possible to argue that there's something specific that's going on in the realm of gender. 
But I also want to argue against that position, which I think is more kind of the, the dominant position in at least in scholarship that's being done on, on these sources. And I want to, I hope we'll have time to see this this evening that um, the ways in which the rabbis both, both assert their authority and relinquish their authority over the human body are similar whether they're treating women or men's bodies. Okay, um, so I want us to, I think we'll, we'll understand more as we kind of go along and see uh, how much this is a question of gender and how much this is, a, this is a question of expertise versus the fact that at the end of the day, when we're talking about um, very intimate experiences of the body, then by nature, we're talking about a very subjective realm. And the halakha has to depend on people's knowledge of their own bodies, which makes it a kind of something of a problematic uh, nature. I mean, if you think about, you know, if you think about modern law, okay, then we don't like, uh, uh, we don't like sort of basing our law on people's individual testimonies about their own experiences, right? We prefer to have some kind of objective evidence that other witnesses have seen or that, you know, something that's kind of very, very clear and standardized and that the jury or the judges can see as well. And the problem with halakha and the fact that halakha is kind of an overarching system of law that also goes into a person's house and into very intimate situations and regulates those situations as well, is that to a certain extent, halakha is going to have to depend on knowledge that only the individual can relate about their own bodies or their own experiences, okay? And so the question is, how does halakha deal with this problematic area, an area that's kind of an area of doubt and human experience, which is subjective by nature, okay? How is halakha going to deal with, with um, these questions of the body? Okay, so now as we get into our specific example, I want us to start already from the verses in, uh, in Leviticus 15 and see that when the verses talk about the zav, okay, a person who has a discharge or the zava, a woman who has a discharge or a nida, a woman who has um, who's impure due to menstrual impurity. Um, in all of these cases, we can see that the verses assume that a person can recognize their own impurity. They don't need any help with that, okay? So the verses say as follows. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any man has a discharge from his flesh, he is impure. This is his impurity. Whether his flesh flows with his discharge or is stopped up from discharge, this is his impurity. Okay, and then several verses later in verse um, 19, Okay, 
אורחי תזוב על נידתה, כל ימי זוב טומאתה, כי מי נידתה תהיה טמאה היא. When a woman has a discharge, her discharge being blood from her body, she shall remain in her impurity, in, in her impurity for seven days. When a woman has had a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or when she has a discharge beyond the time of her menstrual impurity, all the days of the discharge she shall be impure as in the days of her menstrual impurity. Okay, so part of what the verses here are concerned with is distinguishing between the status of Zav and Nida, um, which is kind of normal and abnormal uh, impurities, okay? But what we can see is that it's very clear that a person is supposed to know when they are impure, right? And they can tell when they are impure and when they can move back into the status of being pure again, okay? Um, they don't need anyone else to tell them or to guide them or to look at their impurities in order to determine whether they're pure or impure, but rather this is just something that a person can identify on their own. Okay, now what's very curious about this is that when we look at the Tanaitic sources, okay, and we don't have, we're not going to be able to look at all the different uh, midrashei halacha that really take each word and analyze it, we're kind of looking at the, at the final project in the, in the Mishnah, okay, but the Mishnah, and in general, the Tanaim completely subvert this biblical assumption, okay, and they, they reject this biblical idea that a person can identify their impurity on their own. And they develop a very, very complicated legal system, okay? Um, where impurity comes to be based on two sources of knowledge. The first source of knowledge is, as in the biblical world, the person's knowledge of their own body. And the Mishnah basically requires that a person constantly track their own bodily uh, emissions and knows when those bodily functions are making, um, making him or her pure or impure, okay? That's like the Bible. But on top of that, the Mishnah also adds another component because it doesn't, under, it doesn't see these um, this knowledge, this information as intuitive, but rather it, it understands this information to be so complex that a person can't really determine their own status of purity or impurity on their own, but rather they're going to need an expert who is knowledgeable about all the intricacies and differences of these different emissions in order to determine whether a person is pure or impure, okay? So let's see the most classic case of this in a story in Mishnanida. And the story is about a woman who comes to ask Rabbi Akiva a question, okay? So this is kind of like the most classical um, scenario of accepting rabbinic authority, right? by coming to ask a rabbinic expert a halachic question, just by coming, the person is already expressing their, um, their respect for the rabbinic authority and the rabbinic expertise, and that they're kind of in a sense, um, um, what's the word I'm not looking for? Like not subjugating, but they're kind of, you know, uh, show, demonstrating 
that they accept that authority, that they're going to act according to the question, to, according to the answer of the halachic expert. Okay? So, a woman came before Rabbi Akiva. She said to him, I saw a blood stain. Maybe there was a wound in you. Okay, so maybe this blood is not coming from what the rabbis call from the makor, from the source, which means that it would be impure blood, but it's coming from a kind of a scratch. Okay, which means that it's not it's not blood that's coming from the womb, and therefore it's not blood that makes a woman impure. Amrano hen. The chayat, okay? Yes, it's true. I did have a scratch like that, but it healed. So he asks her another question. Perhaps it could have opened and let out blood. He answered, yes. And Rabbi Akiva declared her pure, okay? So the first thing that we see in this source is that there is a distinction that we'll see a little bit more about later, a distinction in halakha between real blood, a blood flow, and a stain, okay? And a stain is not something that makes, um, that makes a woman uh, impure, okay? Um, so, so Rabbi Akiva is interrogating the woman, right? And why is he interrogating her? He's interrogating her in order to find a way, a way for leniency, right? A way to, to make her, to, to make sure that her status won't be impure, but rather that she'll remain pure, okay? So he asks her all kinds of questions that in a way are sort of questions that are even a little bit, um, you know, like not realistic, right? Like the fact that he's saying to her, maybe it could have been this way, maybe it could have been this way. It's a little bit, it's a little bit of a stretch. Okay, and how do we see that it's a stretch? Because the story continues. So his disciples are kind of looking at one another and raising their eyebrows and saying and saying to each other, okay, this is a little odd. Like this seems like, you know, he's pushing the leniency a little bit too far. Why is this difficult in your eyes? Okay, so he says to them, this isn't, you know, this isn't, why do you think that this is so strange? Why is this difficult for you? The sages said that we're, in, we're supposed to be lenient in this issue, okay? And the whole distinction between blood flow and blood stain is actually intended to bring about leniency, okay? It's a way that we're supposed to help these women and we're supposed to help them so that they won't become impure, okay? So we see here a few things. First of all, <clears throat> we see that this is completely not intuitive, right? The woman comes to ask a question and she kind of seems even a bit reluctant, right? The rabbi's asking her questions. The rabbi's asking her, maybe it was this way, maybe it was that way. And she says, yes, but it healed. Yes, but, yes, but, right? And the disciples also think that what Rabbi Akiva is doing is a little bit odd. 
And what is Rabbi Akiva doing? Rabbi Akiva is basically relying on a verse, right? And he's saying, the verse says um, that Okay, when there's blood in her body, that excludes a stain. So there's a little bit of that kind of creativity in the parshanut that we often find uh, among the among the rabbinic sages, and specifically Rabbi Akiva is often an example of this very, very, very creative, imaginative kind of interpretation. Okay, but what does that show us for our purposes? It shows us that there's an extreme reliance on the Talmid Chacham, because this kind of interp interpretive creativity is not something that the woman could do on her own. Only a Chacham Halacha can do that kind of parshanut, right? And therefore, the woman is reliant on the expert, who's both an expert of uh, interpretation and of reading the verse in the in the according to the uh, according to the midotcha Torani dreshet behen and the way to interpret the biblical text, and she's also reliant on the fact that he is going to interrogate her in a very certain way to arrive at the lenient view. Okay, so this is not something that the woman can can achieve on her own. She needs the expert in order to be able to um, exempt herself from being in a status of, uh, of impurity, okay? Now, this kind of consultation with the rabbinic authority becomes even more complicated because we see in uh, Mishnah Nida, chapter two, that the whole question of which blood is pure and which blood is impure is becomes incredibly, incredibly complex in the Mishnah, okay? And I want, again, to remind you of the biblical text where it seems just something very intuitive that anybody could look at a certain kind of blood and know whether that blood is pure or impure, okay? By contrast, look at this Mishnah in chapter two. There are five bloods that are impure in a woman. Okay, so the red, the black, the one that's like saffron, the one that's like muddy waters, and the one that's like diluted wine. The house of Shammai say, say even those that are the color of fenugreek waters, and the juices of roasted meat, okay? say, no, those two colors are pure. Those two colors will not make a woman impure. The yellow color, declares impure, and the sages declare pure. Um, and then later on, what is red? Okay, so there were five different colors. And now the Chachamim are asking, wait, what is red? What exactly, what, what shade of red? Like the blood of a wound. Like ink sediment. If it's a little bit lighter, it's pure. 
kerem what exactly, when the Mishnah says kekerem kerkom, what does it mean? What's saffron? Kebarur sheyeshbo, like the clear part of saffron. Uchememei adama mibikat beta kerem, like muddy waters, specifically the mud that comes from the valley of beta kerem. Um, Sorry, okay, so the, that, the mighty waters from the valley of Beta Kerem, which are uh, flooded with water, okay? When the Mishnah says, like diluted wine, what does it mean? Two parts water and one part wine from the wine of the Sharon, okay? So what's going on here? The Mishnah is creating a very, very, very complicated um, taxonomy of a palette of colors, right? That are all very, very close to one another. But because some of these colors are pure and some of them are impure, we can understand why you would need an expert, right? And that's something that exists even to, until today, right? That um, that women who are not sure about the color of their uh, of their menstrual blood, whether it's pure or impure, go to someone who has more expertise in this matter. And, um, and this person, because he has a lot of experience of looking at many, many different samples can make this decision. Okay? And I have to say that when I was learning Hilchot Mida about uh, 15 years ago, okay? So this was considered the one area of Hilchot Mida that you couldn't, you couldn't teach. The only way that you could teach it is, by, is through experience, through Shimush Talmidei Chachamim, okay? Through seeing another person make these decisions because, because of the variations in the shades that can be so close to one another, um, it's not something that can be learned in any theoretical way, okay? Um, so the Mishnah is creating this very, very complicated taxonomy. And what does this also mean? That it's also creating a kind of objectification of the woman's body, right? Because taking these two sources together, we see that what's actually happening in these sources is that a woman has to take the samples of her bodily production, of her bodily function, and take it to a rabbi who will rule whether it's pure or impure. So the product of her body is becoming something that's no longer her subjective uh, property, right? But it's, it's, it's an object. It's an object that she can look at, but also the rabbi can look at and scholars can sit and discuss together, is this pure or is this impure, okay? So there's something that's happening here that's a kind of process of objectification of the woman's body, okay? And this, this can also, when we think about it like this, right? When we think just about these sources about rabbis and women's bodies, then we can understand why many scholars took this in the direction of gender politics, right? That this is the rabbis trying to assert their authority by creating a very complicated taxonomy that actually forces women to come and ask them questions, right? The women are kind of disempowered because women cannot become rabbinic experts in, um, uh, in Tanaitic law. That's not something, you know, other than Gloria, that's something that's not very common, right? 
And so therefore they become reliant on the male rabbis. So we can understand why this was understood in a very um, gendered way. Okay, but later on, I'm going to show you that I don't think that this is true only for, um, I don't think that this is true only for uh, the relationship between rabbis and women, but rather it's something that also happens uh, regarding men's bodies as well. Okay. Okay. Now, so we see, we saw those two Tanaitic sources. Okay, and I can tell you that they're representative of several other sources that in general, when we look at Mishnah Nida, we can see that there is a great deal of objection to the kind of intuitive picture that's painted in the Torah. And there's a lot of detail that goes into where exactly was uh, what colors are the blood? Where exactly were they found? What shape are they? Okay, and we're going to see that in one more source now in the Mishnah, in Mishnah Nida 8.1, which is especially important because afterwards we're going to see the Talmudic Sugya on this Mishnah, where we're going to see something entirely different. So pay, pay close attention now to what happens in the Mishnah. So the Mishnah now is talking, we saw the distinction in the story of Rabbi Akiva between blood flow and blood stain. And now the Mishnah is going to talk specifically about stains. So the Mishnah says, ketem al torpa So if she sees a stain on her body, on her flesh, if it is close to her genitals, she's impure. If it's not, if it's somewhere else, like on her forehead, then she's pure because probably the blood is coming from another, another source. Um, if it's on her heel or on the tip of her big toe, she is impure. If it's on her leg or on her feet, if it's on the inside part of her leg, then she's impure. If it's on the outside, then she's pure, okay? Again, because the question is, did the blood come from her body or did it come from something else? Like maybe, you know, she, her dog was licking her and bleeding, okay? Or, you know, or she was dealing as some, some other place in the, um, the Mishnah, the Mishnah talks about what if she was plucking chickens or dealing with something else at the time, okay? Um, if she saw it on her clothes, on her tunic, from the belt and down, she is impure. From the belt and up, she is pure. If she saw it on the sleeve of her tunic, if the sleeve, okay, so if it reaches to opposite the genitals, she is impure. If it doesn't, she is pure. If it's a tunic that she would take off at night and cover herself with, which means it can kind of move around, then any place on which blood is found, she is impure because the tunic moves around. And the same thing applies to a cloak, okay? So basically, what's the principle that we see here in the Mishnah? The principle that we see here is 
what we care about is the location of the stain, right? And as the Mishnah says in the following passage, in the following Mishnah, it says that um, any place where it doesn't make sense, where it's, where it's not necessarily close to, uh, to her genitals, then okay? she can assume that it's coming from a different source. Okay, so only in the cases where she can't make that assumption, where it's not, where it's unlikely to have been coming from a different source, then she will become impure because then it's blood that's assumed to be coming directly from her body, directly from the makol, from her womb, and therefore she is impure. Okay, I see that there's a lot of comments in the chat, so I'm just taking a break one second to open this up before we keep going. Let me see if I can. I think I'm going to have to stop the share for a second. Um, I see that there's some big questions here about ethics in the Mishnaic text in general. So we'll talk about that um, at the end. Okay, let's just stop here for a second. I wanna ask if there's any questions before we proceed to looking at the Talmudic discussion. Okay, so from what we've seen in the Mishnah, we've looked at the verses and we've looked at the, um, at the picture, the general picture that's uh, put out, laid out in the Mishnah. Are there any questions or comments until here? To what extent does the principle of Safek enter into this discussion? In other words, as you stated, it's proximity to source. Does that have anything to do with doubt in that Kozman you know, there's little doubt because of the position, you know, we're okay. But if it's closer to the genitals, there'll be significant doubt, and therefore the disposition is the humrah. Right, so that's, so I think that that's exactly the question, right? We have some kind of evidence. We have evidence of blood. We're not sure exactly where that blood came from. And so as the following Mishnah says in Mishnah 8.2, it says that Okay, so in any, any, basically, again, we see the same idea that we saw in Rabbi Akiva's story, that we want to be lenient, okay? So anytime that we can have, you know, like if she was, if she was checking her son's hair and he had lice, and therefore, you know, it could be there was blood from the lice, or anything that could potentially have brought blood to her body, then we'll assume that it's that, so that she'll remain in a status of purity. But if it's something that's really you know, close to her body, um, that it seems likely that the blood would have come from her body, then she'll, she will become impure, okay? Okay, I'm going to, go, I'm going to share the source sheet again. Okay, because now we're going to see something very interesting. The, the sugya, the Talmudic sugya in the Babylonian Talmud on this Mishnah opens by introducing Shmuel's position. Okay, so Shmuel is an early generation Amora. He lived not long after the, um, after the Mishnah was sealed, okay, um, in Babylonia, right? And Shmuel Amal Shmuel, Badka Karka Olam de Yashvalea, Umatstale Adam, Tehora. 
So Shmuel says, if a woman examines the ground, okay, she, she's about to sit down, she looks at the ground and she doesn't see, um, she doesn't see anything on the ground. And then she sits down, okay? And when she gets up, she finds blood on the ground, okay? And remember that in the Talmudic period, um, underwear hadn't been invented yet, okay? Um, so she finds blood when she gets up. So she, according to Shmuel, she is pure, okay? Now, just wait a moment before you read the continuation of this sentence, okay? The reasoning that's given here. If we think about what Shmuel is saying in the context of the Mishnah we just read, okay? And I'll try and get them both together on the same page, okay? So what does it seem that Shmuel is saying? It seems that Shmuel is just taking this idea of um, location, right? This principle of location that we saw in the Mishnah, and he's adding one more case, okay? He's saying, okay, when she finds blood on her body or on her, um, or on her dress or her tunic, then she's impure. But if she found it on the outside of the tunic or on the outside of her leg, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, in those cases, she's pure, right? So in the case that she checked the ground and there was no blood and then she sat down and when she got up, there was blood. Okay, it's, we, it's intuitive to maybe think that that blood came from her because where else could it have come from, right? But no, Shmuel is saying, no, in that case, also we're going to be lenient and we're going to assume that, you know, maybe she didn't check well enough or as a later Amora explains in the, in the continuation of the Sugiya, it's just that, why is she pure? Because the ground is okay? The ground is something that does not accept or receive impurity. And therefore she remains in the status of purity even though there's blood on the ground, okay? That's kind of what Shmuel seems to be saying at first blush. But then see how the sugiya continues and says, for it says in her body, unless she senses in her body, okay? So if we, if we understand that as the rationale for what Shmuel is saying, then we receive something very different, right? What is Shmuel saying? Shmuel is saying, if she sat down and originally she didn't see blood, she sat down. When she got she got up, she saw blood. She still remains pure. Why? Because of a midrash on the verse, right? That says that a woman is um, becomes nida when she has blood coming from her body. And so Shmuel says, unless she senses in her body. So Shmuel here, according to the according to how we are, we're reading this now in the Talmud, is introducing a very very radical idea against the it's radical against the backdrop of everything we saw in the Mishnah, because what is Shmuel introducing here? He's introducing the idea of sensation, which means that impurity 
menstrual blood can only become impure when we have both the evidence of blood plus the woman's sensation that she actually felt a blood flow, okay? Now the Rishonim, this, first of all, I should say this idea of Hargasha becomes very, very central already in the Talmud, already in the Talmudic discussion, okay? The very first discussion, the very first sugya of Masechet Nida, which goes on for about two dafim, discusses Hargasha extensively. Okay, it discusses what exactly is hargasha, when would a woman feel hargasha, is this something that has an effect retroactively, it has a very, very complicated and extended discussion of hargasha, and hargasha comes up in various other places in the Masechet as well, only in the Babylonian Talmud, by the way, okay. So this idea of hargasha becomes very central in Hilchot Midah. And the Rishonim dispute what exactly is this Hargasha, because many of them say, well, you know, I asked my wife and she doesn't really feel anything when she has her, when she has her menstrual, when she menstruates, okay? Um, so they discuss, they give all kinds of different definitions. Is this Ptichat Makal, that she feels something in her womb? Is it something that she feels flowing out? All kinds of different um, explanations for what this is, okay? But my main point here is that what Shmuel is doing in this sugya is actually something that stands in radical contrast to everything that we've seen in the Mishnah. Because everything that we saw in the Mishnah was pointing in the direction of what we need is we have a very, very complicated taxonomy. We have evidence of blood. Now we need to determine exactly what shade it is, which is a very, very complicated endeavor. And therefore we have to have an expert who knows about this, who will be able to, to determine whether a woman is pure or impure, right? So that, so that, and we, and we said that that is the, the, the Tanaitic picture, the picture of the Mishnah is very, very far from what we saw in the verses where the verses seem to say that a woman can just intuit this on her own, right? So here in the Talmud, we kind of see the pendulum swinging back again, because as soon as Shmuel introduces this idea of halgasha and the woman's sensation, that that's what determines whether she'll be pure or impure, then we're kind of back to something that's more similar to the biblical picture, right? Because it means that what determines whether a woman is pure or impure is first and foremost, what she feels in her body way before she goes to a rabbinic expert, yes or no, okay? Um, so, uh, so this has kind of been seen as what's called a counter discourse to the Mishnah, right? That the Mishnah is pulling very much, as we saw, by the way, last week as well, the Mishnah is pulling in the direction of the rabbis are the only ones who have the expertise to be able to determine the law and that and just a regular lay person is very, very much um, dependent on the rabbi's expertise and that that expertise is also what creates the rabbinic authority. And on, on the other hand, in the Talmud, 
we see an opinion that's pulling in a very different direction. That's saying, no, actually only the person, only the individual can identify her sensation, right? And therefore only she knows if she's pure or impure. And for those who were here last week, that's very, very similar to the idea that we saw of right? that only a person knows whether they're really in need of eating on Yom Kippur, yes or no, okay? So again, the question is, do we look at this through a gendered lens? You know, do we see Shmuel as a kind of, you know, proto-feminist who's pushing back against the, the Mishnah, the Rabbi Akiva, the taxonomy, all the ideas of expertise and being able to kind of control a woman's body through the knowledge that's only available to, um, to the rabbinic experts, okay? And that's how some people have seen this, okay? What, I'll just mention that one of the things that's a little bit odd about that idea is that we don't usually find uh, early amorphous Amoraim in general, but especially early Amoraim, we don't usually find them just saying, you know, like, okay, you know, the Mishnah is creating this whole way of thinking about the subject, and I'm just going to set that aside and introduce something entirely novel, okay? That's something that's, that's um, something that's kind of challenging to this uh, perspective, okay? Now, what I want to point out in the time that we have left now is that this is this dynamic of the Mishnah going very much in the direction of establishing rabbinic expertise and authority. Um, and then the Talmud pushing back against that is not only found re with regard to women's bodies, okay? Um, and I think that we need to pay attention to that and kind of widen our lens and notice that the rabbis are doing something very similar with regard to men's bodies as well, okay? So first of all, we should notice that there are, um, there are certain sources that explicitly compare women's discharges and men's discharges, okay? And one example of that is in Mishnani Da 5.1, where the Mishnah says, all women are impure when the blood is in the outer chamber. Okay, this is something that's also very, very characteristic of Mishnah Nida, which uses um, different kinds of architectural metaphors. So there's the outer chamber, there's the inner chamber, there's the prosdor, the corridor between the different parts of the woman's body. Okay. Um, so all women are impure when the blood is in the outer chamber. Okay, the same verse that we just saw in the midrash on uh, that that supports Shmuel's words. Okay, okay, the man with a seminal emission, Kerry. Um, um, sorry the man with an uncommon emission, meaning Zav, and the man with a seminal emission, Keri, are impure only when their impurity exits the body, 
Okay, so here the Mishnah is kind of juxtaposing women's bodies and men's bodies, that women can already have a flow of their emission when it's still inside their body, okay? They don't have to see it outside their bodies, but men only see their seminal emission outside their body, okay? But what we notice here is that the Mishnah is comparing these two, okay? It's comparing these different kinds of bodily functions of, um, of women and of men, okay? And that's important for us because we'll see in the, in, um, the very next Mishnah, in Mishnah Nidah 5.2, that the Mishnah talks about a man's seminal emissions for the purpose of becoming a Zav, okay? And it uses this idea of Halgasha. Okay, so the Mishnah says, Haya ochel bitruma, a man was eating truma, heave offering. He feels his limbs are trembling. So he grasps his organ and he swallows the heave offering so that he doesn't become, um, the, the heave offering, the truma doesn't become impure when he has an emission, okay? Now, why is this important? This is important because we find this idea of hargasha, okay? And notice what happens in, um, in the Talmud, okay? We don't have a Talmud. We don't have a Babylonian Talmud on Masechet Zavim, okay? As you know, we're missing portions of the Talmud for, for some Masechet, and this is one of them, okay? But um, in a discussion in Masechet Midah, which is mostly focused on women and menstrual impurity, we also have a discussion of men's impurity. And we also have Shmuel there. And Shmuel says there, Kol shichvat zera she'en kol gufo margish ba eina metama. Any, um, any semen that is emitted without being sensed by his entire body, does not convey impurity, okay? Just like the Mishnah thought, said that he felt his body, his limbs tremble, trembling, okay? My Tama, what is the reason? Um, okay, so the merciful one or the, the Pasuk, the Torah said, semen, only semen that is capable of inseminating. Okay, so what is he saying? He's basically, Shmuel is saying, he's again using this idea of, of Halgasha, okay? And I would argue that there is, there is a parallel, okay? And I don't, I don't quite have time to, to show this um, fully, but in fact, what's going on in, in, um, in source number five, in the discussion of menstrual impurity and the idea of halgasha that is introduced there, it's actually introduced through this midrashic um, uh, uh, phrase of shenemar bivsara ad shetargish bivsara. This phrase is actually a phrase that is based on what Shmuel says about men, okay? So the whole idea of women's sensation and this counter discourse of women having bodily sensation and that that kind of 
asserts women's autonomy, that in the end, a woman only becomes impure if she feels something, right? Um, which means that she doesn't necessarily have to run to the rabbi and ask the question because this idea of halgasha is actually what determines whether she's pure or impure. This idea of halgasha is also based on the idea of halgasha in the case of zav, in the case of a man's seminal emission, okay? So this whole idea of a woman, of, um, of a counter discourse asserting a woman's autonomy through the idea of sensation is actually drawn from Shmua's opinion about men's sensation as well, okay? And that also, so here we're, we find that in the Talmud, right, in the Bible. But notice that in the Mishnah, when the Mishnah talks about the Zav, it does a very similar thing to what it does when it talks about women, okay? If we look at Mishnah Zavim, we see that the Mishnah says, Besheved rachim budkim et hazav. In seven ways, they examine the man with a genital discharge. And now there's a whole list. We won't go into detail in all of them. Um, they ask him what he ate in food, what he drank in carriage, okay, how he was walking, whether he jumped, if he was sick, if he saw a woman, if he thought about a woman, um, if he thought without seeing or he saw without thinking, okay? So they ask him, they interrogate the Zav. Right, which is very, very similar to the kind of interrogation that we saw of a woman when she's when she's menstrually impure. Okay, and notice here there's also a story about Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva Omer, Achal Kol Machal Ben Ra Ben Kol Mashke. So Rabbi Akiva says, even if he ate anything at all, whether it was something good or bad, whether and whether he drank any drink. Okay, in all of those cases, he's not going to be impure. So apparently there's other people here, which we can assume are like the disciples that we saw in the first story about the Nida, okay? And they said to him, there won't, wait a minute, they're again, they're lifting their eyebrows and they're saying, you're being way too lenient. There won't be any Zavim here from, from now on. You're, you're basically... Um, negating the category of Zav impurity. He said to them, the responsibility for Zavim is not about, not upon you, okay? So again, here we see this tension and maybe I should have put it in the opposite order, but we see this tension between the Mishnah in Zavim when it's talking about men which is doing a very similar thing to what we saw in Mishnah Nida, right? It's saying only the rabbi can interrogate the Zav and ask him, did you do this? Did you do that? And only the rabbi is the one who can basically create the leniencies to exempt a man from being in the category of Zav, which means that not only a woman, but also a man is very much subject to the rabbinic expertise and authority. A rabbi, a, a man who's debating whether he is Zav or isn't Zav has to go to a rabbi and then the rabbi will interrogate him and ask him, did you do this or did you that? And then he will give him a psak and say, okay, you either are Zav or you're, or you're not Zav, right? So it's not only women, but also men who are very, very much dependent 
on the rabbinic expertise. And then we see the same dynamic that in the Talmud, we see Shmuel introducing this idea of sensation and saying, no, it's not, it's not only a matter of the rabbi interrogating the individual, it's also a matter of whether the person felt something. And that's something that the rabbi can't know firsthand, right? It's only the woman or the man who knows whether they felt something in their body, yes or no. And so this idea of sensation stands in opposition to the idea of um, to the idea of the expertise that we find in the in the Mishnah. Okay. Now I should mention that even though this idea is very very much um, developed, okay, this idea of sensation, we also find a different trajectory in the Bavli of Nida, which. Um, which is a, traje a trajectory which takes the idea of the taxonomy, the blood taxonomy, and makes it even more complicated, and makes it so complicated that we find rabbis saying that they don't want to rule on Hilchot Nidah because it's so complex that they're concerned that they're going to make a mistake, okay? Um, so, so there's kind of two paths that develop in the in the Bavli. On the one hand, there's this very, very um, complicated taxonomy that grows larger and more complicated. But paradoxically, instead of uh, uh, bolstering rabbinic authority, it makes the rabbis anxious about their own authority because it makes them concerned that they would make a mistake. And if they make a mistake, they're making a mistake in divine law, right? They're making a mistake that they're telling a woman that she's pure when she's impure, or they're telling a woman that she's impure when she's pure, then, you know, that has significant um, repercussions for, for the woman and for, and for her husband. Um, and on the other hand, we find this very kind of subversive idea of halgasha which is basically saying that um, the, the expertise and the knowledge of the rabbis is not the only determining factor, but rather the knowledge, the, the entirely subjective knowledge of the body is also something that has an important place in halakha, and that places the, the, the power, the control over the decision back in either the woman or, or the man's hands, okay? Now, as we did at the end of the shiur last week, we can also talk about, you know, what happens in the continuation and the development of halakha post the Talmudic period. So I can tell you that although this idea of halgasha has such weight and significance in the, in the Talmud itself and in Masechet Nizah, after the Talmud, it really gets um, it gets limited and in a sense written out of halakha. So on the one hand, any book on halakha that you'll open will always talk about dinei halgasha, okay? And it will talk about you know the different interpretations of the rishonim, what could halgasha mean? And if a woman feels, if there are certain women who do actually have a certain sensation, then that impacts them. 
very significantly in Hilchot Nida. But for most women who don't have a specific sensation when they menstruate, um, this is basically an idea that's kind of written out of halacha, okay? And really the, the paradigm that uh, reigns more supreme in halacha post the Talmud is the idea of consulting with a rabbi and the, the complex uh, taxonomy and the different colors, et cetera, et cetera, um, that allow a rabbi to determine um, what is the halacha with, uh, uh, about a woman's body. While Zav is basically something that post the destruction of the temple becomes a non-issue. Uh, really the only area of Tum'ah Tahara that remains applicable in today's world is menstrual impurity. Um, and so eventually it does become something. In our world, it is something that's very gendered, which I think explains why when scholars looked at these sources, they saw it through such a gendered lens because in today's world, it is a very gendered question. But again, when we look at the sources in the Talmud and we broaden our lens so that we're looking at how the rabbis treat men's bodies versus how they treat women's bodies, we see a very similar dynamic of the Tanaitic sources asserting rabbinic expertise and through that expertise authority over people's bodies. With the, with the Bavli and especially the voice of Shmuel pushing back against that view and asserting the idea of sensation as a way to assert individual autonomy. I'll stop here and I'd be glad to hear your comments or questions. Where is, this is fantastic. Where is the source where the rabbis express anxiety about Psakalacha? So that's in the Bavli. Um, I'm trying to think what daf it is. Um, the person who's written most about this is Shai Sekunda, who has a book about menstrual impurity um, in the Talmud, in the Bavli specifically. And he shows how, um, he calls it blood science, okay? How it becomes very, very, very complicated. Um, and he talks about how the role of the skilled bloodstain examiner becomes, uh, it, it goes to kind of heroic proportions, okay? So um, I think what's the verse that they use there? Um, it's not, it's not Hashem uh, Yirela but it's, oh, it's Sod Hashem okay? They say, you know, only, only those who really fear God have access to this Sod, um, the secret of being able to interpret these halachot uh, of Yilchot Nida, okay? So if you want, you can shoot me an email later. I'll tell you exactly which dapim these discussions go on, but Shai Sekanda has really written about that a lot. Okay, yeah, so, okay, so I see that someone wrote here about the fact that in the post-temple period, you know, this becomes something that's only something for women, which I think, which we we discuss, um, and, and, and yes, of course it's true that there aren't women's voices who are included in the discussion, and I'm by, by no means trying, this is not an apologetic, uh, this is just, um, you know, I think it's just important to put our politics aside in a sense when we look at, at the Talmud, right? Like obviously 
if we would write the Talmud today, obviously we would include women's voices, um, but we can't really look at the Talmud and, and expect women's voices to be included. So then the question becomes, okay, so if we're looking at it from a perspective of a text that was written by men, it, do we see a difference between the way they treat women and the way they treat men? Now, I'm not saying that there's no differences, right? Like obviously there, are, there aren't statements about men who are kaleidat and there are statements about women who are kalotdat. And you know, some of the rabbis certainly held positions about women that we probably wouldn't, um, we, would, you know, we wouldn't express ourselves that way in, in our batei midrash today. Um, but I also think that it's important not to look at every discussion through that lens of gender and to notice that, you know, there are, there could be questions that are just questions about regulating the body. And as the body, the body as a site, you know, the most intimate site and the question of do rabbis, can rabbis go there, right? Um, and that we see that that's a question where the rabbis assert their authority over, over bodies not only for women, but also for men as well. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you, Dr. Libson. This was a very interesting second class in this session. And thank you, uh, everyone, again, for joining us today on Zoom, on Drisha Live, and on Facebook. We continue our spring program uh, this Sunday at 10 a.m. with a class with Rabbi Silber, Your Name Shall Be Great, The Abraham Narrative. In addition, we have many more classes happening right now. You can find out more information as well as the registration links on our website at www.drisha.org classes, or you can watch classes live at www.drisha.org live. Thank you again, Dr. Lipson, and thanks again, everyone who attended. We hope to see you soon at one of our upcoming classes here at Drisha. Have a wonderful day.